Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plus Four podcast, exploring the big wide world of Hickory Golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion, and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers. And visit us online at plus4.org. Thanks again for doing this. Thank yeah, you. I'm really excited to have you guys on. Could you guys each just give me three or four sentences about each of you individually? And Mike, let's start with you. Mike Stevens. I'm a uh, golf teaching professional here in Tampa at McDill Air Force Base. I've been playing Hickory Golf over 20 years. Just been in Florida for a long time and just love it down here. And that's basically it. Rich? Uh, I'm Richard Grula. And I, let's see, I've been playing Hickory Golf since my kid was seven. So that makes it three, 16 years. And I, you know, I'm not a very good golfer, but I enjoy playing. I'm getting better. Getting better. Yes, Rich. He actually played nine holes today. And I turned to my son and I said, hey, neither of us lost a ball today. So I felt like achievement. So, yeah. That's and are that. you still at a university there, Rich? Yeah, I teach film at the University of Central Florida. Mm -hmm. And Bill? Uh, Bill Geisler retired. I was in the telecommunications industry and I've, I've been playing uh, Hickory Golf for about 20 years best I can remember. And I have completely uh, turned just all the way to Hickory Golf as far as my enjoyment. And I'm past president of the uh, Society of Hickory Golfers, been a board member and avid golfer here in, uh, in the Winter Park, Orlando area, and love being a part of the Florida Hickory Golfers Association. So that's me. Well, I was, I was amazed, gentlemen, at the connection to the Nebraska Hickory fellows for the origin of your group. I just read about that today. I didn't realize there was a connection. Mike, could you talk a little bit about the origins of the Florida Hickory Association or Florida Hickory golfers? Well, uh, Cody Kirchhoff, who was from Nebraska, moved here to Florida back in, I want to say, 2010, 2009, somewhere in that neighborhood. And he you know, when he when he moved here, Randy Jensen gave him my contact information and Cody contacted me, told me, you know, he had just moved into the area and he was uh, an avid Hickory player from Nebraska one, and wanted to know if we could get together and play. So I invited him over to uh, McDill and we played uh, we played 18 holes over at McDill. And he was talking about any chance uh, about getting uh, starting up an event somewhere. Uh, he was living at the time down in the Brandon Valrico area, which is a little bit east of Tampa here. And, and he became a member of a course down there called River Hills. So he set up a day and invited some people to come and, you know, and, and just do a, a one day hickory event. And, uh, you know, some of I, I think a couple of his friends from Nebraska came down. Uh, we had a couple of people from Orlando. We, we ended up with like 10 people that played that day. And uh, that's really from that point on, Cody and I just started, you know, organizing monthly events and inviting people to come and join us. And, uh, you know, from that small original start, you know, we developed into what we are now are the Florida Hickory golfers with regular monthly events and, uh, you know, moving around uh, the different locations around the state of Florida. And Mike, you had been playing hickories already for about 10 years? 
Yes, I've been playing. Let's see. I really started playing hickories probably, I want to say 1996, 95, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, I played in the a couple of the Golf Collector Society mm -hmm. uh, annual, you know, what they call their hickory hacker or whatever it was, um, and just and really enjoyed it. Then I got a set of, of clubs from Tad and started playing a little more. And I played in the first National Hickory Championship up at Oakhurst. And uh, that's really where, you know, I talked with Randy. Randy and I played up there a lot. And uh, that's really where we started to generate ideas about holding more events. Because at that time, the only events were really the Heart of America, the Golf Collector Society, and the, the National Hickory Championship. Those were the, really the only events going on. So, you know, we started talking about, yeah, you know, we should hold more events since we have pockets of people playing. And, you know, from there, it just, things started to grow uh, all over the place, all over the country. It's pretty neat. I wonder, you know, you guys are a statewide association. Is that fair? Do you pretty much serve the whole state? Well, we attempt to. Mm -hmm. I've seen you talk about Central Florida and Western Florida on the website. Well, we, we, I mean, most of our events are in those areas right now. Although we have ventured up into the Jacksonville area, We've gone down to South Florida a couple of times. I think this year we're probably going to be with, with the Florida State Golf Association. There's an event up in the Panhandle, so we'll we'll have something up there. But mm -hmm. for the most part, we're more you know centrally located all across the state of Florida. Yeah. What is interesting about that is like I've noticed that when we play somewhere else, there's this cluster of golfers there that we hit. Like when we've played those East Coast places, who's the guy who's like? He's not the mayor of Coco, but he's some administrative governmental oh. person over there. Yeah. And you know, there'll be this pocket of people there. And like you said, we've gone up to Jacksonville and Mark Carnival is up there. And there are certainly people other parts of the area, but it's mostly central Florida from I don't know, what would be fair to say, from Sarasota to Orlando, kind of. Well, yeah, and across maybe to Cocoa Beach area, Melbourne, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. One thing I think is interesting is to think about Florida over the last 120 years. You guys have this snowbird dynamic, much like Arizona. That has to have a major impact on the history of golf in Florida. Obviously, Ross designed a bunch of courses, I know, in your area, Mike. Right. Prob probably all over Florida. Can you guys talk a little bit about the dynamic of being in that state and what impact that has on a Hickory Golf Association in today's times, whether that's collections that are sitting in people's homes or archives or historic courses, designers, all that? Well, I, I got to say one thing, because of the uh, the effects of the, the turn of the century in the 1920s, Florida was inundated with a lot of golf courses created by Bendelo, Ross, and a lot of the designers that came down through that period of time when golf was booming and the roaring 20s were happening. So we're, we're kind of blessed with it today, a lot of municipal courses that are, that were at the time well-designed and well laid out. So we have a lot of options to play for the Hickory golfers and not just private clubs. So we've got a good, a lot of good choices in, in the Muni and public uh, course range. It's kind of funny you mentioned about snowbirds. Yes, we get a lot of folks that come down from up north in the north, northwest, northeast. I ran into a guy today at Mount Dora, a guy named uh, Gene Kiter. And Gene, believe it or not, he looked like he was in his 70s. He was 85 years old and he plays hickory. And he used to, he used to live in Omaha, Nebraska. He currently lives in St. Louis. 
but it seems like everywhere we go and no matter what tournaments we play, if it's Tampa, Orlando or wherever, we tend to bump into somebody who's had some acquaintance or some experience with Hickory golf and we share stories and then they say, Hey, I know a guy or I know a lady who'd like to get involved. And uh, that's how it kind of grows. So we're, we're, we're kind of blessed with having the snowbirds coming down this way and, and having a lot of uh, opportunities to play a lot of different golf courses uh, around the state. Yeah. A lot of the uh, courses that were developed back in the, you know, the turn of the century were associated with the railroad guys, plant and uh, uh, Flagler as they, as they developed their railroads, uh, on the major cities that they stopped at, they built these grand hotels and they put a golf course in on the grounds of the hotel to attract northerners to come down and play. Mm -hmm. So there were quite a few courses that, you know, were developed in those years. You know, there's, I think there's the Florida state historic society has 56 courses, I believe on their historical golf trail, they call it. Mm -hmm. So, and these are all courses that were developed, you know, in the, in the twenties, the teens, of course, winter park was 1914. Uh, but most of them are, you know, are, are in the twenties. So there's quite a few and a lot of them are still, I don't want to say in their original designs, but they're very close, you know, to, to their original layouts and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing about the, um, the equipment, I kind of was under your impression that like, Oh, we're here in Florida and everybody comes here to die. And therefore we're going to have a ton of equipment here. What I've sort of noticed is that people seem to have gotten rid of their stuff before they moved a lot mm. of them. And so I find, you know, Wardy Wardwell up in Massachusetts seems to have a line on a lot more stuff because people stayed there mm -hmm. and their clubs stayed in the attic. We know another guy in Wisconsin who's just constantly like, oh, look at all these Stewart clubs I found. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, I just found a bin of clubs at an antique store and it was just rusted crap. It was, <laughs> I wouldn't have built a table out of them pretty much. And they, you know, they're, they're beyond, they're less than commons and they still want a chunk of money because they think they're an old golf club. And, and really there's like people who are building, you know, man caves that just want props and I would say, just buy those clubs because they're just props for you. And, and I don't want to hit them. There are collectors down here, but I find those collectors get the stuff from other places mm -hmm. in general. I yeah. don't notice a ton of low. I mean, I think Bill and I and Mike probably have more clubs than a lot of, you know, I'm still waiting to find that pile of clubs in some guy's basement or no, there is no basement here. That's the problem. You see, there are no basements here. There are no basements. <laughs> and you, know, you have to find, I just think they've jettisoned them for the most part. Uh -huh. uh, you know, so we get them, but we find them in a lot of other places. There's, there's a big um, four times a year. There's a gigantic antique fair here called Renningers, which some of your listeners might know there's a Renningers up in Pennsylvania. They're related. And Bill and I will go on the first day and try to scour that place. And we'll find some stuff there. But it's it's uh, there's like I'm sure there are, we, we ran into one other guy there last year who got there earlier than us and had a, a backpack with like 12 clubs coming out the back. Uh -huh. And we're like, are, we, we, you know, you think this is a pretty tight society. So you think, you know, everyone who plays hickory golf. And we're like, oh, do you play? He's like, no, I just collect them. And then he walked away. Like he uh -huh. didn't even he didn't want to talk to us. No, he just ran like, he, you know. So that's how we might tackle him, Rich. Who knows? Yeah, next time I think we push him over and grab the clubs. I He's mean. the one on eBay listing clubs for $1,300 each. 
Right. One of many. Make me laugh. I do enjoy that of the overpriced, you know, I've got a Spalding Crow flight. It's 900. People are so depressed when they show you their their prideful antiques and you go, oh yeah, that's a common. That's worth like 15 bucks. And they uh -huh. just go, what? You know, yeah. they get so bummed out. And, and, and we always... I mean, the golf collectors guys, I think, freak out because, you know, Bill and I and, and Mike and a few others restore the clubs. We believe they're meant to be played. So we put them back together again and play them. And I know those guys, they love to just hold like the, the barely together club with the goatskin grip and that's falling off. And they just gently hold it up like, oh, you know, this is worth $200. And we're like, no, I'm going to rip that apart and refinish <laughs> it and clean it up and put a new grip on it and try to hit it. And, that's just a gas. It makes them a gas. So, you guys have any 19th century courses in Florida? Well, actually, there's a couple that were there. I mean, the, the original their layouts aren't there anymore. But mm -hmm. there's courses mm -hmm. like the Bel Air Country Club, right? That's uh, what I was in uh, Clearwater was was established in 1895. Mm -hmm. But you know, I mean, the layout now is completely different than what yeah. it, what it would have been in 1895. I don't think there are any active pre 1900 courses still around right. i mean i think winter park is probably one of the earliest at 1914. yeah i just looked up seminole is the 20s yeah and most of them are in the 20s i mean there there was on the on the grounds of, of uh the university of tampa which used to be the the plant uh hotel there was a course that was a nine hole course there in 1895 that's you know long been been gone there was another 1800 1890 course in sarasota which was built by uh, this fellow, John Gillespie, who came over from Scotland, became the mayor of Sarasota. He started, he came over in like 18, I want to say it was 1870 or something and built two holes on his property. And then he built a nine hole course. He's the one who also laid out the nine hole course at, uh, at Bel Air and at the at Plant uh, Hotel. But I mean, those courses are long gone mm -hmm. now. So there's, there's nothing really of that era here any longer. And Mike, you're at a military course today? Right. Yeah, so probably a similar history as it is out here. There were military courses. Most of them are gone today. Yeah, our, old, our, our older course was built in the 50s. So there's there was mm -hmm. nothing, you know, the, the course wasn't there when the original base opened in the 20s. Mm -hmm. And just for the sake of listeners all over the world, so everybody knew that during the recession, you guys as a state were hit really hard in terms of real estate. Obviously, many people have second and third homes down there. Was it devastating for golf courses or was it fairly contained? Uh, it wasn't good. Um, you're talking about 2008, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the themes of Florida is it has absolutely no problem plowing over anything historical or old and building something new. Mm -hmm. And there were several courses in Bill and I's area in Winter Park that around that time kind of just gave up and either they got developed or they're holding the land until they can develop it or something like that. And it's, it's kind of sad because now in the last year with COVID courses are packed. Everybody is, you know, now every course is now making money unless they're idiots. And there are certainly idiots who own courses here who, who put them in too much debt and they're never going to make money out of them. But th there were a number. I mean, I can think off the top of my head, Rolling Hills, Rock Springs Ridge, that course down by Lake Wales, Mike, that you and I and Bill played one time that was behind. Oh, yeah. Hills. Yeah, I remember that. And, and I understand Lake Wales Country Club is... is it got sold. Yeah. yeah well, so there, you know... 
uh, we did lose a lot of courses, Rob, but you know what? We have like 1300 courses yeah. here in the state. Yeah. We got way too, we have way too many courses. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, when, when, when the downturn happened, you know, there just weren't enough golfers to support them all. Now mm-hmm. it's, I think now it's probably, you know, rolling back to a, a point where, you know, they can sustain themselves because there are enough golfers to support them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of courses, especially down here, were built as a feature to sell homes. Yeah. Like, let's throw a golf course in and we'll surround it with homes. And, and unless those courses are supported, after a period of time, people are like, oh, well, it's a woods or a course. I don't care. I just, you know, uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, there are certain neighborhood courses like Ventura in Orlando or even Castleberry, which seem to have this incredible neighborhood support. And they're small you know, they're not long courses. Nobody's going to do a U.S. qualifier on it, but the na- the locals play them. And I think those courses, you know, that if they found their way to survive and didn't get screwed in some weird management deal, they've stayed, they've stayed around. Rob, to kind of encapsulate it, if you look at Florida's history since the early 20s, you had the boom bust of real estate in 1920s and the Great Depression. You had a boom bust in year 2000 here. Again, real estate. And then 2009, you know, real estate bust. And uh, unfortunately, like Rich said, a lot of these courses were tied to real estate development and they just went to the wayside. Yeah. So it's interesting. And, we, and I think at one time, if I've read this correctly, in the year like 1930, 1928, there were literally about almost 2,000 golf courses in the state of Florida, wow. and they just half of them got wiped out. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, what was that, uh, Bill? What was that core Crenshaw course out near Mount Baird? Snow Hill Mountain or something like that. But yeah, there, was, there was a core Crenshaw course out in this area called Mount Baird. Yeah. My son played it, and we played. It. There was nothing around it. You would drive yeah. this empty road up to a trailer that was the gate, and then you would go in, and there was this beautiful core Crenshaw course, and they never built a house around it. And it existed in this weird bubble for a certain number of years, and then they closed it. And mm-hmm. my understanding is now they are going to open up, you know, they're selling houses now out there, so they're going to open it. So it was a beautiful golf course. Yeah, it was. A be- yeah, it's a beautiful golf course. And it felt like you were playing Texas because it was really windy and they'd have these wooden yeah. fences and stuff. The other weird thing, and uh, Rob, I don't know about this in other places, but what you'll see in Florida a lot is that it's, it's generally a lot of places. It's not walking golf. So you'll get in a cart and you'll finish putting and you'll have to drive a half mile to the mm. next oh, because yeah. that's how they put in all these houses. You know, it's like, we yeah. need that many houses or we need to have a swamp here or whatever. So it's rare that you find something like winter park where it's a fairly compressed tight area. And there are other courses like that, like Mayfair is pretty compressed just in sort of it's maybe on 100 acres of ground or maybe 70. Um, more likely you see these trails and trails and trails and it goes all the way around and they're just trying to figure out how to build houses around. Yeah, it. maximize the views for the owners, the homeowners. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, can, you can tell when a golf course was built prior to the uh, big bust, uh, big boom, excuse me, big boom of golf carts that typically the tees and greens were close together. But when the golf course entered the picture, the golf carts, you could have distances between tees and greens, you know, 300 yards and so on and so forth. Oh, more than that. <laughs> yeah, easily. Crazy. Mike, if you think back to your uh, early days, 2010 era, 2014, how has the membership grown? Is it just organic and it's sort of doubling every year or? It grows, I mean, from that original 
10 people that played. I mean, I think I, I our, our email list is, is contains, I want to say close to a hundred people right now. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it, it, we pick up people, you know, onesies, twosies at a time, whenever we, whenever we go somewhere, someone mm-hmm. might say, Hey, this is really cool. How, how do I get involved? And, you know, we just give them the information, put them on our mailing list. And then all of a sudden they start showing up to some of our events. Yeah. So it's really not, I mean, we don't do, we don't go out and market ourselves. We just kind of, you know, appear at a location and someone might see us and say, Hey, I'd like to get involved. And that, that's really how we've grown primarily. And you must have out of state members. I don't know. I'm not sure we call ourselves members. We're just, I, I'd say participants more than uh-huh. anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more of a generic, I mean, we don't have like an official uh, roster with dues or anything like that. We just, you know, we have, a, I, I have an email list. Whenever we do something, I send the email out and say, we're playing here on such and such a date. Who wants to play? And then I get responses and then uh, set up the tee times and off we go. Yeah. Yeah. It's so very, very low maintenance in terms of, I know some places, you know, North Carolina, they had like a one-time fee and you had talked about Northwest had a fee um, to cover basic expenses. But I think that's actually a secret of running these things is the less onerous you make it, uh, it's sort of like this litmus test. People who want to play come out and play. Yeah. And they don't feel like Mike, I think, does a terrific job of picking these courses. So, you know, no one's ever paying one hundred and fifty dollars a round. And you could you could in Florida, you could play nothing but one hundred and fifty to three hundred dollar round courses. Mm-hmm. We don't play them. And therefore, people, you know, it's not a huge deal. They'll come out and pay $40 to go play around the golf with some fun people. Yeah, actually, that's very similar to our group, Rich. We don't have a fee. We're all volunteer, and we love yeah. the low-maintenance angle of it. We'll occasionally add a $5 buy-in above the greens fees just to build a kitty for something. You know, we've, we're now going to host our second U.S. Hickory Open in the last five or six years. And we build a little kitty for things like that. So we can do some banners and some extra stuff that's at the election of the host organization. I think that's a huge thing, though. I remember Josh Fisher, who used to work at Louisville Golf. Mm-hmm. He and I used to talk about, like, what do you think makes a successful regional group? Because let's face it, the society kind of pushed the regional idea in the last five years, seven years, um, they kind of said, hey, let's let's not just do national events. We should push people out. They can do regionals. And and we were both convinced that a lot of people, I mean, Bill and I, Mike, I think you still play modern clubs, right? Because you're on the Air Force no. base. No, you no, don't play no, modern clubs? No, I don't play any modern clubs. Okay. So all three of us only play hickories. But there are a lot of people who split their time between hickories and moderns. And you almost have to be cognizant of that, that maybe they have a membership at a club that they're paying a lot of money for. And this mm-hmm. is like their extra fun thing. And I just find it's, it works. I, I've just heard of other regional groups who have problems when it gets too upscale and they're all patting themselves on the back. Like, Ooh, look at this fancy club we got into. And then there's six people who show up because mm-hmm. that's, you know, all who's going to come out and pay the fee. I think that's really a secret of, of, of Hickory regional groups is acknowledging, you know, how many people and what their actual interest level is. Yeah, you're talking my language. The other thing we're experiencing here is this kind of soft, low level debate about whether things should be competitions all the time or casual plays. And Rob Alshwee and I stand squarely on the casual play end of the spectrum. We don't want to have every single event be a competition. Yeah, but more I- and more, more and more people want to. buy pay in for deuce pots and whatever 
it's it's de minimis. It's not a lot of money, but I don't want every single event we do to be a competition. Personally, I don't know that we. You know, we our our normal monthly events. We everybody throws in five bucks and we do a blind draw, two man, two person team draw. Mm-hmm. But that's it. I mean, our our big events. We really have three. We have the Winter Park Hickory Classic now, which we just two, which has been through two two seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the U.S. Pro tournament and amateur tournament at Temple Terrace, which is uh, 11 years old now. And then we have our year-end championship up in Mount Dora. But the rest of our monthly events are just, hey, here's a, here's a historic course that we haven't played. I set up tee times. Here we go. You know, and most, you know, the, the one, the great thing about the, the ones, the historic courses we generally go to, they're all municipal mostly and they're cheap. Yeah. I mean, we never pay more than 30 or $35 to play. Yeah. So, you know, so throwing an extra five bucks in for, for a little, yeah. you know, blind draw is nothing. The thing that I think is smart about the way Mike runs this also is, A, it's a blind draw, so I can win, you know, and, mm-hmm. B, and B, it's it's not based on absolute score. It's based on how good you did compared to your handicap. Sure. Yeah. So Mike has this little, you know, magic and he gives you a number and he says your number is 18 or 36 or whatever. And then you're trying to beat that in a Stableford. Um, so it's, you know, your absolute score is kind of less relevant mm-hmm. in a way. And we have like two guys who are going to win every time an absolute score. So yeah. it sort of opens the pot up to everybody. Yeah. I like that. Um, and that's, I think it's very democratic. And so it's almost more like a, a random raffle or something that we're holding each time. And like, oh, I put in five bucks and I got back 10. Yeah, great. And, and I didn't. Mike, but, you mentioned Temple Terrace. Can we talk about that for a minute? Was that the first of its kind in terms of a pro hickory tournament yes. out in the U.S.? Yeah. Yeah, there, there had never been a professional yeah. uh, just, just for pros up until then. And is that growing every year as well in terms of the pro side of the equation? It's, it's kind of stable. I get about the same number each year, uh, anywhere from 18 to 20. And are, are those players integrated with amateurs or are they playing a separate? Yeah, we, 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 have both, we have both a pro and an amateur event on the same day now. It, it, the first five or six years was strictly pro. And then I, op- I, I, started, I opened it up to amateur, to an amateur championship also. Primarily because the first U.S. Open and first U.S. Amateur were, were played together in the same week. Mm. So I said, hey, this sounds cool. I'll just have a pro and an amateur on the same day to mimic what they did back in 1895. So that's how the amateur uh, side of it got into it. But, but yeah, it, it works out great. And Rich, are you the guru for all the awards and team markers and all that stuff? Um, no, well, not for Mike's event. Um, mm-hmm. For the Winter Park Hickory Classic, Bill and I sort of do that, but I do a lot of the design stuff. Yeah. Um, and we, we've started running our, we, two years we've been running our event. We managed to bracket COVID just perfectly. Uh, so, and, and uh, you know, our event was really interesting. The first year Bill planned it, the same weekend as the PGA show, which is in Orlando. And so we thought, oh, some people will come down that we know and they'll play. And what we were shocked at is that, you know, the Winter Park course is like you are going through the streets of Winter Park. You Mm -hmm. like literally are pulling your cart across streets and stuff. So people are just walking up and looking at us like, what the heck are you? Like, what is this? But we found all these guys who were coming down from the PGA show 
who had heard about this WP9 course, the Winter Park 9 course, they were talking to us on tee boxes like, oh, we'll be back next year. We're from Scotland. We're, you know, could we play? And so, um, I, you know, we just can't wait until it goes to the next kind of level with it. In fact, what was weird is, Bill, how many people we had the first year we had 25 people. And I think this year we had, we maxed 44. out. 44. Yeah. We had 50, we had about 55 people apply for the tournament. We could only accommodate 44. Mm. But, you know, we, we might grow that more and then we'll see what happens from that. It's fun. You know, a lot of people know this winter park nine course. In fact, I was watching the golf uh, channel or the golf tournament this past weekend. And I think um, Billy Horschel or somebody sculled a shot and Faldo said, Oh, that's a WP nine special. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and then they started talking about the course and I'm like, this is great advertising. These guys are great because Faldo lives nearby the course. And so he will go out on it occasionally. Mm -hmm. And all the golf channel guys, when the golf channel was based here would be on the course pretty regularly too. So, yeah, I mean, we definitely have a vibe of like, we want to run a certain level of tournament in terms of design and look and the prizes and everything. And Bill sort of organizes the whole thing. And then I try to assist him on the design and stepping in wherever it needs. To it's, be it's gorgeous stuff. You know, I see it all on Instagram. I just, I like the look of what you do. Yeah, that's what we're trying. You know, we, we were just like, most people do this. So it's almost like accidentally. It doesn't have to be accidental. It's just as easy to do it intentionally and to come up with a good design. And it doesn't, you don't have to use Times New Roman because that's the new the default font in your computer. You, know, you can come up with something different. So that's, you know, we just, I think the look pays off. And, you know, I do a lot of event management. I used to be a marketing director for a film festival here. And I always tell people, you're always selling last year's event. So like, if you do a great job, you've just done half your job for next year yeah. because now everybody's going to go, oh, I want to be part of that thing that happened last year. Yeah. And here's your chance for it. So that's the way we look at it. And, you know, they know us really. And in fact, you know, here's the kind of the proof of the pudding. There's a town just north of us, Bill mentioned Mount Dora. They've had a tournament for 51 years up there this year because they've gotten to know us they had a hickory division in their tournament. And the Florida State Golf Association, which Mike can talk about more, they've now integrated a hickory flight in their one day events. This is the serious state golf association. These yeah. are the guys who run the, uh, the, the US Open qualifiers and stuff. They're now promoting hickory golf, yeah. which is astonishing to me. And I think personally, it's because Kevin, that guy, Kevin Hammer, Bill came to us and that we we were playing hickory at some silly event at some scramble at winter park and they put a guy in our group bill and i and i think my wife and marcy natalie wells and marcy likens and um he was enjoying playing with us and one time he said hey can i try the clubs and oh you know this i always love this with hickory you give somebody new your club and you try to tell them okay now don't swing real <laughs> steep and swing and this guy just swings and puts it out like 260 yards and i'm like okay, I'll shut up now. <laughs> you got it. Um, but, you know, I think, Mike, were you dealing with him already at that point when he played with us? Or did you start dealing with him after that? No, I, I actually never dealt with Kevin at all. I dealt with the guys from the, the main office. They contacted me, actually. It's funny, they, they uh, actually, they taught, they contacted Tom McCrary, who's one of our members, a pro right. up in, here in, in Brandon. 
and called him up and said, Hey, do you, you know, this Mike Stevens guy? And he said, oh, yeah, I think I, I know him pretty well. So he, he called me and he said, this guy from the Florida state golf association wants to talk with you. So I called him up. His name is Aaron, Aaron uh, Scoveria. And he said, you know, we're, we're really, we, we've seen what you've been doing with this hickory stuff. We're kind of interested in uh, finding out more about it. And it just so happened. It was the week before this was last year, the week before my tournament at Temple Terrace. So I said, well, we're holding, you know, the, uh, the tournament at Temple Terrace next Monday. Why don't you guys come on down and, and see what it's all about? So he and uh, the, the, the president of the, the uh, FSGA, who I think they, his, he's, he's retired or they got a new president now. But well, that's, they, that's they, Kevin Hammer replaced him. That's what I was yeah, thinking. They both came down and saw what we were doing and said, hey, this is really, this is pretty cool. Can we have, can we get together at our location and talk a little bit about more what we might be able to do together? Because we'd like to support this. So, so we went up and had a, a meeting with them up at their facility here. Their, their, their FSJ uh, office is located uh, just a little north of, uh, of Tampa. So we went up there, had a meeting with them and talked about, you know, it would be really cool to have a, a state hickory open. You guys run the Florida state open or the Florida state championship. What if we had a Florida state hickory open? They said, yeah, that's a great idea. And then we started talking about different courses and, you know, we ended up coming up with the Sarah Bay course for the state open. And then they said, well, we'd also like to do some uh, hickory divisions in our one day events. So the first year they came up with five events Five five courses that we we played, and it was great. We had a one hickory only day, down in Bradenton, which turned out pretty. I think we had 24, 25 people at that. That was that a good event. Day. Yeah. So that's worked out well. We've got uh, this year. We have like nine or ten events scheduled as one day events with them, plus the Florida Hickory Open in May, which we've already got forty two people in uh, uh, coming to play in, and we're hoping to get about sixty. So we're we're pretty close to getting there. And that's a one day event? No, it's a three day. It's well actually oh. a two day with a practice round. Right, so we right. We have a dinner, an opening dinner and you know, a luncheon afterwards. Uh the pro there's a pro division with a with a nice uh, purse. I think they said up to seven thousand dollar purse for the pros and then a pretty nice uh purse for the amateurs too, because they give gift certificates for the amateurs. Mm-hmm. So uh you know, we're we're really hoping that will become a, a really big event on the schedule. And, you know, hopefully we'll get some more interest from, you know, people who don't necessarily play Hickory, but might want to give it a try yeah. just to see what it's all about. Yeah. Sounds, you know, sounds to me like a giant pipeline for your future growth. Well, yeah, they have 3000 members. Mm-hmm. So, and they, you know, they, and, they did a great job on their website. I mean, they've got us all over their website. It's fantastic what they've done so far. You know, the FSGA, we've already played some events. They bought several sets of Hickory clubs also. So if somebody just wants to try it out, Mm -hmm. they can rent them a set of clubs or get them a set of clubs, which is great. And I got to point out, you know, for years, literally years, I had gone to national hickory events and everybody said, oh, we should get the PGA to give us money or we should get the USGA to give us money. And, and those organizations just ignored us, A, because they're not going to give you money, yeah. but B, they had their own business going on. 
where the FSGA, I think, looks at us and says, this is golf in the state of Florida. We should be involved in this. You know, we can bring out an extra 10, 20 people. We can spread the word about golf. So it was, I think that it was, it was so key to get the state organization involved, not a national organization involved because they're just busy doing other stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, but the state organization wanted to support us. And, you know, and I think having professionals in it, like Mike and Tom and people legitimized it to some degree to him. It was a bunch of yahoos, you know, playing crappy town golf with clubs that blow up. Uh, we actually tried to play, you know, we weren't going to, they get private clubs for us. This is the amazing thing. Like brain you know, that, that, That's one of the great things about it. Yeah. Is we go to, you know, where where Rich was talking about going to $150, you know, clubs. Um, now we're going to them through the FSGA for 50, 50 mm -hmm. and $60. Right. So and, that's, and that's fantastic too. They get us on it on, on a Monday in a private club when the club is normally closed. And, you know, we're super respectful. Everybody who plays with of us course, is, yeah. is like really knows what they're doing and is, is plays quickly and does the whole thing. But I think it's just a win, win, win for everybody. And it's, it's one of those things that sort of shows me as a marketing guy, the trick is to pick the right partner of who you want to partner with and target. You can't get the national organizations to pay attention to you because you're just nobody. And yeah. even our national organization, I don't think the SOHG could get the, the PGA to really pay attention to them, but the regionals can probably get all the state organizations. And if that happened for five years, then maybe the USGA or the PGA would pay attention because they go right. cheap. Yeah, we got 10 state organizations that are doing this. And you think about it, you know, North Carolina has a big group. You guys out in the Northwest have a big group. We have a pretty big group. Wisconsin, Texas, Texas Arizona. Wisconsin, Arizona. Yeah. There's, a, there's a significant number of people in the U.S. who have significant regional groups that would be worth their state's golf association attention. Yeah. And I yeah. hope they all do it. The state golf associations like what Mike said, uh, Florida has like 300,000 members, which is just very large, obviously. And uh, each state would have probably the same amount of numbers. And for these large regional groups to participate makes a lot of sense because then you can start sprinkling in like a hickory day or whatever you want to do. And just to further add that these outings that we have and the outings that we're doing with the FSGA, even though they are competitions, Primarily, all of our gatherings are social gatherings. Mm -hmm. And I think as long as we stay close to that concept and not try to overemphasize the competition part of it, you get a broad-based participation rate. And that includes the ladies uh, and all variances of handicap performance. And try to make it as mostly, you know, as a very welcoming event, you know, for people to get involved. And I think if the state organizations who have like 250,000 members could just get a few hundred as kind of something socially to do or something that was just interesting to do, we'd see some further growth in that. And yeah, like no Rich doubt. said, then it might expand eventually to the USGA. Well, and everybody sees you guys are getting media coverage and you know a lot of the regional groups are getting more and more media coverage. It all grows exponentially, I think. Have you guys organized in terms of a board or anything like that for your group? No. We leave it to Mike. <laughs> yeah. We we, we like that we like the concept of the czar yeah we have I mean, it, you, know, you know frankly we all get along very well if somebody's willing to take the reins and run with it sometimes that's just the best way to do it 
I think Mike has a group of people he will call upon. I mean, he's asked Bill and I to book a club in right. Orlando that we know maybe mm-hmm. better. I mean, I run the website. I just do it. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly Bill and I and Natalie Wells and Marcy Likens and Mike are the board of the Winter Park Hickory Classic. But really, that's what do you want to have for lunch? Those are the kind of yeah. questions. Yeah, you yeah. Sort of I, I, I get there. it. You know, how much do you want to charge for this? Okay, Bill, how much is it going to, you know, and we all, we, we assigned everybody a little job and they went and did it. And, you know, Marcy is, is she's a uh, course raider and she also knows the handicap system really well. So we're like, Marcy, you argue with the guys about the handicap you're giving them. And she mm-hmm. likes that. Um, so we all took a role and that's, that's how we divided it up. I just, I don't know that we're important enough to have votes yeah, and, and arguments about who gets the window seat and who gets to spend the money and this and that. It just, I don't know. It's a march. It's a step in the wrong direction. I think. I think we should be playing golf and having fun. Yeah, worried about a lot of other stuff. Yeah, keep it, keep it fun. Have keep you guys done fun. any match play events down there? Uh, we had a match against the North Carolina players. Mm. Mm-hmm. That was God. That was way back. That was. That was didn't back. we do that at Mission Inn? Because I remember playing against Bullock, a match play event. Oh no, but that was that. No, that was the uh, the Lionel Friedman thing. We we yeah, played. We the Florida Hickory golfers played against the North Carolina Hickory golfers. I want to say back. God, it would have been two thousand and eight or something, maybe two thousand nine. And then we were supposed to go. We we did it at Temple Terrace. And then we were supposed to go the following year to Pinehurst. And I don't remember what happened, but the uh, it might have been during a, a, a bad economic period or something because we couldn't get enough guys to travel up to Pinehurst. So we didn't we never we never got the second one mm-hmm. uh, initiated. But that, that would be the match plate thing we ever did other than we did the uh, the uh, the U.S. Uh, against Europe. That was the one we did at Mission Inn. But that was. That was the, uh, well, it's turned into the Lionel Friedman Cup at the time. It was just called the Hickory Cup. I think. But it wasn't the Grail. No, no, no. This this was the anti-Grail. <laughs> yeah, the anti-Grail. I like it. The Grail. Yeah. And did, did Lionel come to Florida for that? He called in. Because uh-huh. Yes, said, no. You know what? He came the year before to play in my tournament. And then that's when he said, then the following year he was supposed to come. And that's when he started having his health issues and yeah. they wouldn't let him travel. So mm-hmm. he couldn't come to that event. He came the year before to my event. And then he came also to the Hickory match play up at uh, the cricket club. Yeah, I was there. Brian yeah. human ran. Yeah. But the, then he, you know, then he had the health issues and then unfortunately he passed away. Yeah. He called in to the, one he of the- He did call in that time. Yeah. And I set up a video link. I have it online. I'll send you the link for it if you Great. want. Yeah, I'd love to um, see it. But it was actually a very nice you know, video call. I don't remember. If, I think he he might've recorded the message and then it got downloaded to me. I don't. I can't imagine. We didn't have Zoom then. So it wasn't like this sort of thing where it was live. But yeah, he was part of it. Well, you guys have had a good showing overseas at his tournament, the World Hickory Open. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? How many, I, how many of your players have been over to that now? Maybe six or seven? At least. Yeah. Let's see. All of us have been there. We probably had a dozen or so. This year we've got, mm-hmm. uh, we've got, we've got 12, I think, going this year. From the States. Well, no, from, no, from Florida. Florida. From Florida. Florida, we've got about 12. 
Yeah. Yeah, Bill, I think we've got a dozen going from Washington alone, and there's a bunch of Americans going over this year. Yeah. If 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 we can. Well, you know, true. that's actually one of the interesting things about regional groups is there's definitely sort of the percentage of players who are going to travel. They go to Tad's event in Alabama for the Southern yeah. History Four Ball, and they'll go to the, the Pioneer events and stuff. But there's a big chunk of people who aren't going to travel out of the area, yeah. and you just can't expect them to in a way. So I think that's one of the reasons why kind of regional regional matches, if you're trying to depend on everybody, don't work as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, there might the way to do it. I think would be to go to um, Mid Pines and then have a match there. You know, right. the, before state, that event. state versus yeah, state, yeah, stage an event tagging off that event yeah, just because there's about a dozen of us who will travel yeah. from Florida and there, then there's two dozen people who are not going to be members of the SOHG they just like yeah. playing and that's fine we're good with that too yeah it's the same here absolutely the same yeah. and Mount Dora is every year you go to the same course every year yeah that's our that's our year-end championship mm, neat is there a point Although, system or just a just yeah we do weekend? a uh, we call it the race to Mount Dora <laughs> Uh, so each each event each monthly event, people uh, can accumulate points for seating at Mount Dora. Mm -hmm. So like the top ten people get additional points added to their score on the first day. So if they're the the top guy would get ten points going into Mount Dora. Mm -hmm. To so he starts at at plus he starts with ten points right off the bat, and then yeah. then we do the Stapleford. So yeah, nice. Um, Whatever that you know, whatever they get for the staple for you add he, the the top guy would get ten points on top of that. And really, Rob, the you know the the Florida State Hickory Open will be another anchor event in May. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also this past sure. weekend, Mount Dora, you know they're doing this Mount Dora Invitational where there's now a Hickory flight there. So that'll be another kind of cool event. So there's an, a lot of kind of anchor events, but. People should know that if they're coming to Florida for, hey, I'm coming in January, I want to do something, you know, get in touch with us through the website, either Mike or, or Bill or myself, and, you know, we'll tell you, okay, these are the events we're playing this month, or even if you just want to come out with Bill and I on Saturday sure. morning and play Winter Park or over in Tampa when they're playing, because um, everybody comes to Florida, let's face it, uh, yep. they're all going to show up here at some point. Now, have you guys made any trips to Streamsong or some modern courses as a Hickory Golf Group? We have gone to Streamsong once when it first opened. We played the red course down there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do play modern courses that, that are Hickory friendly. I mean, mm -hmm. I try to select them that I know that are going to be, you know, that, that, are, that are good layouts for Hickory. So yeah. we have played a few. But yeah, I try to, I mean, I try to find some you know, when we're looking at courses to play, I'll look at a specific area. And if they don't have an older course there, I'll look and look at some of their courses and say, okay, yeah, this would be a good course for us to play. Mm -hmm. I think we played one up by Brooksville uh, last summer, Sherman Hills, which was a really good one. And then we played Huntington Hills. Remember that? That was a good course. And uh, where was the other course over in Lakeland we played? Uh, Sandpiper. Those are all modern courses, which were really good for Hickory. And Bill, you're a high school coach, aren't you? Are you still coaching high school? <laughs> No, not currently. Coach, okay. about 14 years. Yeah. Did any of those students uh, get hooked on Hickory? <laughs> not at this point. Okay. I, I should follow up on them. Yeah, they got a good smattering of Hickory golf, but uh, now they're 
well, a lot of them are graduating from college now and starting families or yeah. whatever. So yeah, but we never we, really hooked up on that. On that Bill show. actually set up a Hickory High School event because it was my son, Jake Grula and Charlie Tang. And I don't remember who the other two guys were. And I, boy, oh boy, they did not like it. They did not like not being able to hit the ball 300 yards and yeah. just, uh, they were, <laughs> they were pissed off about yeah. it. I think kids are, it's, you know, I always say that hickory golf is a, uh, is a sport of humility. Like, it, you know, there's no bragging really. In Even the guy who hits it the furthest, like you put Jeremy Moe out there, he's going to hit it far, but it's not like you can't play with him. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like it's humiliating. I mean, he shoots well, I shouldn't say, but he would humiliate me, but um, but you know, it's, it's just, you have to kind of be humble about what you're going to hit and how, what the yardage is. And if you're absurd and you think you're going to hit it a million miles, like, you know, 15 and 16 year old kids will think good junior golfers, they're, they're just so pissed off about it. They're like, pow, I, I swung it and it went over there. What the hell is that? This club's horrible. So, you know, that's just their nature. Uh, how about gutty golf? Is anybody in your group an enthusiast in that area? Is that something that you're thinking of? Well, Mike, Mike and I are the, the participants in the uh, National Hickory Championship, and, and Rich has a set of gutty clubs. He's played gutty. Not well, but I have. Uh, well, it's, not, it's not real big, although we are going to try to do a remote event with, in conjunction with the National Hickory Championship here. We did it last year. I don't, I, you know, it might be a once a year type thing. I, I don't think anybody down here is mm -hmm. going to really opt to play. I mean, in our remote event, they thought it was, it was interesting, but most people said, I don't ever want to do this again. Yeah. Well, to, you, let's just keep in mind, Mike, that two guys had heat stroke because this was well, in, too. in Florida. But even, even the guys that finished said, yeah, that was interesting, but don't invite me again. <laughs> Well, Bill, I was going to ask you, is it our conditions such that courses get baked out? Because that I find up here is the ideal time for gutty. They don't get baked out, Rob. It's just that down here in Florida, you've got wonderful weather and then hot as hell. Yeah. And and so uh, what we battle down here, you know, starting May time frame, you know, in about the middle of October, is just it's just brutally hot down here. Yeah. And uh, the conditions, it's usually wet, and then you got to deal with the hurricanes and those things. Yeah. Uh, and as far as the Hickory golfers, you know, we, we continue to do our once a month uh, outings uh, through the summertime, but we're a little less formal about our wear and things like that because it, 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 the heat index is going to be 100 degrees out yeah. there. So, Bill, I used to live in Miami Beach. I moved there on January 3rd. 1991 and it was 98 degrees and yeah. i mean that's miami beach but still it was unbearable but you had a breeze we did have a breeze <laughs> you had a breeze in miami now in orlando it could be dead calm yeah <laughs> it's that, that's kind of miserable that's one of the reasons why we like to use carts in the summer because the only air conditioning you get is just mm. driving in a circle on the fairway <laughs> with the windshield down right like, ah the cooling breeze from the cart thank you yeah is the Golf Collectors Society uh, healthy in Florida? I think they are. I, we, Rich and I have been to a couple of their events, their uh, regional events, and I guess we would call them outing, where they just throw a bunch of stuff on a table and they mm -hmm. all get together and talk stories. And we try to convince them that, like Rich said, the $200 club, we're just going to tear apart and we'll give you 40 bucks for it, you know. But uh, they're, still, they're still quite active. Uh, we we have a couple of guys in that group who are kind of good friends. 
that like we've gone over to what's his name's house and gone through his garage and stuff and um Frank Henry. that's a good guy and I mean yeah. I think it's because his wife wants us to take away all that stuff just like she's a yes yes sell it yes get rid um, of this get rid of it but it, the, the golf collector society it just they're very funny about you know they empty their trunk they put it on a table and I'll pick a club up and I'll say oh so what are you thinking about with this and the guy will just sit there and jingle change in his pocket tell me a story and then tell me it's not for sale I'm like, why is it here? And they're like, oh, you know, I just wanted to talk about it. It's it's kind of a lonely heart society at times. And I think they need to be a little more focused on commerce if that's if they're going to collect anything. But uh, I don't know. I've had weird experiences when I go to their shows. There's a lot of stuff that's not for sale, apparently. They're, they're great guys. I mean, they're, they got tremendous knowledge. It's fun to talk to them and meet and talk about their experiences and their collecting and all that. But they, they have a wealth of knowledge, but they also have a wealth of clubs that are really players' clubs, not something that you just want to stick in a closet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Rich and I love to see, you know, get a hold of some of these pieces because, you know, guys are, guys are constantly trying to, to build original sets. Yeah. And uh, they've got some of the pieces that we're looking for. And, uh, you know, especially if they're reasonable prices to get somebody started. Mm-hmm. They do have a freakish amount of like paraphernalia though, like weird golf related things, especially from the fifties and forties. Like I bought one thing, it's like this plastic disc with a golfer on it. And the circle is just a series of excuses. And you spin it when anybody asks you a question. It's like, well, I can't do that now, or I'm busy playing golf or something. It's like some weird thing from the 50s. And they that's the stuff they seem to have tons of. Yeah. Just, you know, memorabilia, um, medals, you know, player medallions from tournaments, magazines and stuff. You know, if I collected that stuff now, I'd be all over their things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that, they have a lot of that, a lot of it. Bill, you kind of touched on golf club restoration. Do you guys have people in your group that are sort of the go-to people for that? It's Rich Gruel and myself, mm-hmm. really, in the state of Florida. Uh, I know that uh, Tom McCurry tinkers in a little bit, but uh, I'm doing quite a bit of it. I know Rich is also. And we're, we're both doing really great work. A lot of guys come to us to get repairs done. And I think it's good for the Florida Hickory golfers. There's somebody local that can do yeah. this stuff. Yeah. No, but a lot of guys, you know, that they get involved, you know, they'll start with a with a Louisville set or a Tad set, and then they'll start picking up some original pieces. But it takes time, just as it took Rich and I time. It took us years to to learn the skills and experiment. And make we made a lot of mistakes, but then we learned from that, and then you know we do a pretty fair job of it now. And, um, and we're charging reasonable prices to the guys to do this work. Uh, it's mostly a labor of love, honestly. Yeah. I, I get I get the biggest kick I get is taking a piece from some guy that's just totally unplayable, straighten out the shaft, re-epoxy, reattach, put a new grip on it, and hand it to him, and he's, his eyes open up and go, oh, my God, I got a really nice piece here. Yeah, you do. And he can go out and love it and have a great time with it. And that, that gives me the greatest joy. Mm-hmm. And that's really the way to get these guys playing also. I mean, if they're playing with relics that are rattling, it, they're not going to want to play after two rounds because either the clubs have fallen apart or they're like, oh my God, this is just going everywhere. So if you tune up the club, it's a lot more fun to play. And we'll get guys, you know, usually every tournament, somebody will bring, a couple of people will bring a club and hand it off to us and say, hey, could you just look into this yeah. and fix it, you know? And yeah. So we have a good little circulation going. And then sometimes it's like, <laughs> 
sometimes I'll get something. I got a club where the shaft was cracked and I was like, yeah, split, you know, literally like split. And I was like, I don't know that I, I'll try, you know, and I went in there and sealed it and, you know, glued it and whipped it. I think I used that glue that Oshweed told me about, you know, this very liquidy glue. Mm-hmm. I handed it back to him. I said, I don't know if this is going to work. Be careful. Don't be have anybody in front of you when you swing this the first time. I saw him like six months later. He's like, oh, I still played. It's a great club. It worked perfectly. I'm like, okay, good. Well, I've learned how to do that now. So I'm now I will do split shafts <laughs> and, and warn people. <laughs> don't swing them in front of me. I've seen Mr. Geisler rocking the uh, Gearheart Northwest Hickory shirts occasionally. Do you guys do any apparel? You've got a great logo. Well, we did a towel mm-hmm. and we have the ball markers and you know we do have a florida hickory logo and i've been thinking about doing something with that that's something i got to talk to mike about we should actually do something you know a limited run shirt or something like that i know bill and i talked at one time about for the tea gift for the winter park hickory classic doing like eight panel hats Mm -hmm. um that would be kind of cool too i mean you know, once you have a good logo and it's set up an illustrator and you can, you can run it around to places and those guys will, you know, sew it in and do the whole thing. So you will see. Yeah, you, know, you know, Bill, those Columbia shirts that we've done, uh, I think we charge our players 50 bucks a shirt. Yeah. And people love those. They just love them. And they wear them to tournaments at Mid Pines and World Hickory Open. You know, they kind of fly the flag when they're out playing, which is nice. We should well, talk to you about that. Yeah, about we should do something. Mostly, the only thing we've done, I think, was uh, the bag tag that Will Jacoby made for mm-hmm. us with yeah. our logo. Well, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, I think that we, you know, we could look at something like that for Mount Dora, like our end of the year event. Yeah, yeah, yeah that would be good. That have a hickory, uh, our Florida hickory golfer logo on a, and a Columbia shirt. Nice thing about those Columbias is that they're they're basically sun blocking shirts. Yeah, I and mean, a lot of us again down here. In the summertime, I love that shirt because it's I can wear that when it's 98 degrees out. Yeah. And uh, keeps the sun off me. Hey, Bill, so you seem to be the go to guy on Hickory handicaps, not just in Florida, but I get that sense for SOHG, too. Is that true? Well, the SOHG supporting a a handicap system that was based on the old GIN calculations. Okay, Mm -hmm. and we it's been successful. It's it's pretty much bulletproof. It runs very well. It produces a hickory only handicap for all those who need something like that. Now that the uh, world handicap system has been rolled out, it's of course here in the United States and Canada and all over the place, I mean, including Europe, it has some differences to it than what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Though it's, not, it's not huge. And as we've also talked about our association with Florida State Golf Association, our handicap system is, is very useful right now. It serves a purpose. But I can see in the future that we may incorporate some relationship with the USGA that the Society Hickory Golf may then be a participant in the world handicap system Mm -hmm. where the SOHG handicaps will be based on that calculation system and probably pay into that system, but we'll have separate Hickory handicaps through it. But that's something that has to be really discussed because as it stands right now, most states, and I believe the USGA, that you can only have one GIN handicap. You can't have two. Though the Florida State Association guys have talked, have talked about that concept and they're willing to work maybe within that. They, of course, then have to go to the USGA to get permission. But I mean, I can see in the future where the SOHG membership will include 
the cost, it will, it will, the, the cost of the membership, of the SOHG would include participating in the USJ GIN on based on the world handicap system. I, I can see that in the future. And so that think- it is so that it is more homogenous and, mm-hmm. and perhaps more widely recognized that when you go into a tournament, a handicap tournament, you say, well, I've got a hick- I've got a handicap. I'm playing hickories. And by the way, I have a hickory handicap with the world hickory system that's out of the state of Nebraska or wherever mm-hmm. that is administered by the USJ system. For, for, my, for myself and Bill and Mike, who only play hickory, our SOHG handicap is pretty much exactly the same as the GIN handicap. I keep mm-hmm. my scores in both places. It's within a tenth of a point, you know, so it's not a problem. But for people who play both modern and hickory, like if they go and play our state events as a hickory player, our state event automatically places that score in their GIN handicap. Yes, and sure. like my wife, for instance, keeps all of her modern scores in GIN and her SOHG scores in Hickory. And so she then has to go and pluck that out because it screws up her handicap. And that's what Bill is talking about, the necessity to get GIN to recognize sort of two handicaps yeah. for Hickory players who also play modern. Um, that'll be interesting, but, but I, you know, I think it's possible. I don't see it being impossible. They'll probably just charge us twice. (laughs) Yeah, they may do that. But I think it's what's interesting is we're kind of saying to the Florida State Golf Association, yeah, we got a problem here that needs to be solved. And by the way, you guys have the ear of the USGA. Yeah, I think they're really they're really leery about letting people have two handicaps, because what if people kind of sandbagged and have an extra hand, their serious handicap and then their their sandbag handicap. And they don't I'm sure they don't want to open that door. So they need to know that, you know, we're playing from different yardages. We're playing with different clubs. It's a whole different sort of way to play. And frankly, Bill and I have done research about creating a more accurate hickory handicap like we actually feel that men playing hickory their handicap is more equivalent to what a woman plays on a modern course because of distance of drive and what the yardage is and stuff but that's a fight we'll never probably solve while we're alive (laughs) but it would be more accurate it would make the guy who's winning a tournament have a scratch a hickory tournament have a scratch handicap because they shot 73 and 72 as opposed to a guy shooting 73 and 72 and having a six handicap yeah um so that's another issue we i'd love to address one day yeah we could yeah we could talk that's another yeah that's another great conversation we brought marcy likens into that conversation because she's a course raider for the florida state golf association and she handed us their book basically it's the manual of how they rate courses and we started looking at this thing going, well, that's interesting. The ladies, they use a lady pro or lady scratch handicap, driving average driving distance, five iron, seven iron, so forth. So, and you start look, realizing that it, uh, it aligns with a average to low handicap male distances. Hickory so going, player. Okay. And so you look at the ladies ratings and you go, yeah, that's probably about right. Because there are ratings. That's one thing she also said was interesting. She said, by the way, there are ladies ratings for back tees at golf courses. They just don't publicize them. Mm. But we rate every tee box when we go rate a golf course for ladies and men from back to front. So you could go to the, if you, somewhere you can dig it up, they'll show it to you. Yeah, You can find the ladies rating for a back tee and say, well, mm. you know, that thing might be a 77 for a lady at the back tee. Well, you know, that kind of makes sense. If I grab Jeremy Mo and say, hey, Mo." 
go play the back tees and so-and-so golf course. Yeah. He'd probably break 80 barely, but it would be kind of in line with that. And that's right. what we were kind of discovering. So before we finish up here, tell us, what are you excited about? What, what, what's, what's keeping you excited about the Florida Hickory golfers in this day and age? I think I, well, I think it's all the things we talked about. The Florida State Golf Association uh, Alliance is, is huge. I mean, we're, we're groundbreaking on that, yeah. on that side of it. And I think it's just every day we, you know, we're getting new players and we're, we're going out and playing new courses, courses we've, sometimes never been able to get onto. Uh, as Mike and Richard said, the Florida State Golf Association is getting us entrees into some private clubs that we normally wouldn't be able to get into. But, the, you know, I think that's what the exciting thing is about it. Uh, you know, we're, it's continuing to grow and, and, you know, we all we all try to be enthusiastic about it. And, and when somebody comes to play with us, you know, we they themselves get hooked and, and yeah. enthusiastic. And so it's, it's just a lot of fun. And again, it's, it's about the fun and the socialization of it. That's, that's where I get the biggest kick. Yeah. I think I'd have to agree with that. I mean, I, I it's just, it's, it's enjoyable. I mean, uh, getting to play, you know, old historic courses, meeting new people and just, you know, everybody, everybody in Hickory golf seems to enjoy their, the company of the others. And, and we just have a good time. So let's do a quick fire thing for the sake of listeners. Mike, let's start with you. What are your three favorite courses in Florida for hickories? For me, and these these are courses you can actually play, I would say number one is probably Sarah Bay in Sarasota. Number two, I would put probably Mount Dora. I really, even though I get killed every time I play there, I, <laughs> I play so badly, I can't imagine, but I love the course. And the other one would be Dubstrid in Orlando. Mm-hmm. Those are my favorite hickory courses. Mm. And Bill, what about you? Oh, wow. Well, one of them, unfortunately, is very private and very tough to get on is Mountain Lake. That's that's mm-hmm. a beauty. Uh, it's a Seth Rayner down in Lake Wales area. Sarah Bay would be another one. Yeah, Mount Dora. <laughs> I got to laugh. That that course, you look at it on the surface, it's uh, par 70 under 5,600 yards or something like that, but it just kicks your behind every time. And uh, it's very enjoyable, very playable. You don't lose a golf ball. I, Everyone that's ever played Mount Dora said, you know, I have yet to lose a golf ball there. And that's that's one of the nice things about it. But and I got to say something else, Rob. I think what's my favorite golf course is it's the tee box I'm standing on it yeah. when I'm around a bunch of other Hickory golfers. It's, you know, I don't know. It, it, but there's and, and we'll probably discover more courses in the state of Florida as time goes on. Yeah. We've run into some interesting like River Pines that Mike mentioned. We played there the other day uh, uh, several months ago. but unbelievable you know it's it was a community golf course and it's like whoa this place is really cool but uh yeah a lot of good stuff out there how about you rich um well since those guys mentioned really courses that i would mention too i'm I'm of course going to say the winter park nine everybody should play the winter park nine if they're in central florida you know if you're in central florida you should try out castleberry too it's a little weird neighborhood course that used to be a goat track up till about two years ago and then I, the town start took it over and it's gotten really good and it's a really fun weird course it's just there are bizarro 200 yard dog leg right holes and then you then followed by a 190 yard par three through like a narrow you know it's just nuts um you can lose a lot of balls there uh, <laughs> And then I'll tell you one other course, which I've been telling people about is Mike brought us down to Avon Park 
um, oh, yeah. several, a couple months ago, which was, it's a Ross course, isn't it, Mike? Down in Avon yeah, Park, Florida? Pinecrest? Yeah, Pinecrest in Avon yeah. Park. Right, it's called Pinecrest, sorry. Mm. Um, and I was, it, it's, it's like one of these courses, you go down through the heartland of Central Florida, down into, you know, Obscuro Town, and it's this great course and it's in good shape and they haven't screwed i love when there's like a ross course that the count has not figured out a way to screw up like the members don't have enough say i don't know what it is but they have not screwed up the course yet and it's in great shape and we've played it twice i think pinecrest yeah. um really enjoyed that both times i'm actually going to go down we're going to figure out a way to go down again at some point it's about an hour and a half from me but i, I would i would recommend that course from anybody floating down in that area how about the best thing about living in Florida for Hickory Golf? Let's start with you, Mike. Oh, uh, just the weather. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, we can play every day. It's just great. And, uh, you know, other than the summertime when it's hot, but you know, then you got golf carts. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just love the weather down here. Mm -hmm. Bill, It's year round golf, but again, I think there's a lot of golf courses that we have yet to play. There's a lot of places. We didn't even talk about South Florida. I mean, I was just talking to somebody the other day, talked about Grenada. It's it's a nine-hole course, I think, in south of West Palm or something. It's, but anyway. no, it's, in Coral, it's in Coral Gables. Coral Gables. But, yeah, there's there's courses down South Florida we probably don't know about, or up in the Panhandle. There's 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 places yet to see. But uh, it's so nice to be able to go all year round here, and uh, we'll probably discover them as time goes on. Mm -hmm. Rich, I would say the best thing about Florida and Hickory Golf is the humidity because it helps keep the clubs in the slots. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you take your you take your Florida humid 100 percent humidity clubs and you take them up to like the northeast and suddenly the glue joints start breaking and everything gets weird <laughs> down here. It's like you're living in a bucket of water. So mm -hmm. everything's pretty solid for the most part. And uh, which historical golfer inspires each of you most? Let's start with Bill. Uh, Walter Hagen. About, okay. it, it, it's Hagen, and and he's got roots down here in Florida. His his parents, by the way, lived in Longwood, Florida, not but ten miles from where we live here. You're both kind of dandies, right? Oh well, in, in a, yeah, in a yeah. good way. Yeah, good oh way. yeah, yeah. I, I guess I can qualify. I can qualify as a dandy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, or as or as Jay Harris would say, a fop. Fop. Yes. Yes. Which, rich. Uh, he's yeah. Um. I, Oh, um, I, I'm a Bobby Jones guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think particularly because he stayed as an amateur, as a player, and and I just the video that well they weren't videos the movies that he did the instructional movies and actually comedies. I, you know, I'm a film professor, so I really love the fact that he sort of stepped out when he stopped playing and said, I'll teach people by this new film system and we'll put these movies out. Um, and I have all those DVDs and I just, they're great. And I've learned so much from watching them that I, you know, I definitely kind of, that's, that's my guy probably. Mm -hmm. Mike. Um, if for me, it's Walter Hagen too. I mean, I, I love, I've read most of the books about him. I love a lot of the stories about him. And uh, there's a great story here in uh, Tampa, where he won his last tournament at the 1935 Gasparilla Open. But uh, there was a big controversy during the week because the, the newspaper wrote that Hagen was all washed up and probably wouldn't even play in the tournament. And he read it and, and got ticked off. So the day of the tournament, the first round, 
he was uh, scheduled to tee off, I think around noon. And all the, you know, all the people were standing there wondering, is he going to come? Is he going to come? Well, about five minutes to 12, he rolls up in his, in his cars. I think his driver rolls up in some kind of a fancy car, Rolls Royce or something. He walks out, tees up his ball, nails it down the fairway and shoots 64 and goes on to win the tournament. So it was, it was a great story, but, uh, um, that was his last win here in Tampa. Mm. Wow. Uh, what hick, what balls do you prefer for Hickory? Let's start with you, Rich. Either the Wilson duo or the 50-50 or the Bridgestone E6. That's mm -hmm. pretty much the three that I have in my bag at any given time. Bill? Uh, the Wilson Wilson uh, duo soft uh, or the Callaway super soft. Those mm -hmm. two. Yeah, Mike. I uh, Well, I use the Wilson 50-50 a lot, but I got a free dozen of Titleist Pro-V ones. <laughs> And I'll tell you, those balls are good too. Just they're too expensive. <laughs> if you like those, Mike, go to Costco and get the Kirkland Signature Ball, which is I've apparently the same thing as a title oh. for V1. I'll have to give it a try. logo on it. So, and let's close with uh, your the most memorable shot you've hit in Hickory Golf, and you can go in any order here. All right. Well, I I can go. I was playing in the I don't remember the exact year, but it was at the National Hickory Championship. Randy Jensen and I were locked in a titanic battle on the last day. We get to the 17th hole, and I think I was one down at the time. And uh, Randy was already in for par. I had about a 10-footer for a birdie, and I rolled it right in and uh, tied the match and then won the on the 18th hole to, to win the National Hickory. That was my first time I won at the National Hickory, but I'll always remember that putt. Uh, to, to square the matchup and then go on to win the win the tournament. Nice. Cool. Yeah, I, I got to say that mine's the final putt of the National Hickory Championship at the Cricket Club. I, I, I drained a birdie putt to finish out. And that, that was a big memory. And then I guess the other memory is uh, hole-in-one. With I was My first Hickory hole-in-one was with Rich, his wife, Natalie Wells, and his son on the eighth hole at uh, Winter Park 9. Yeah, knocked, knocked in a, a mashie. So, yeah. That's cool. Um, I got to say, you know, Mike mentioned Randy Jensen. Brian Schumann and I played a, it was that tournament that's before Mid Pines over at Pine Needles. It's a alternate shot tournament. And, and Randy, I guess, had brought a friend of his who was a doctor in, uh, in from wherever, and they played. And Schumann was on fire putting. The guy drained everything. And all I had to do was kind of throw the ball up on the green somewhere <laughs> in the vicinity of the hole. And he was making putts that Jensen was just getting sick about. And he ended up doing it on the 18th hole at Pine Needles. He made, I, my favorite shot was that I chipped it up on the green without screwing <laughs> it up. I mean, that was literally it. It was, it was I, I hit it up there and he made like a three foot downhill putt and we won. And, the, <laughs> and and at that point, Randy just disappeared. He, said, he shook our hands and left. He walked right into his condo that was near the 18th hole. And we had to go get him out because Brian wanted a picture of the event, which I don't think Randy was happy about. And then, uh, and then later that night at the trade show, <laughs> Randy was shaking his head going, I can't believe you guys beat us. And he looked at me and he goes, look at you. What? You look like some out of shape guy. How did you hit those shots? <laughs>
And that was probably my most proud moment in golf. Was that I hit half of the shots for of 72 that beat Randy and his buddy. And that Randy was pissed off at me because I just looked, you know, like I wasn't a golfer. You're an enabler. I said, that's, that's a great memory. I said, thank memory. you, Randy. <laughs> and I got the picture of it to prove it, damn it. Uh, can you tell us how viewers and listeners can find you on social media and on the web? FloridaHickoryGolfers.org. Yeah, and then the Winter Park uh, Hickory Classic has a website, um, and we also have a, a Winter Park Hickory Classic Instagram, which we maintain through the year, and uh, we invite people to come on that. Um, personally, I stay off social media otherwise because I find it kind of poisonous, but I like to have the event out there, and people get in touch with us through that. Now, we do have a Facebook page, too, the Florida Hickory Golfers uh, is on Facebook. And the Florida State Golf Association has mm. us all over their website, too. Yeah, they have us on their website. Yeah, good. I'll put links to all of this in the show notes. I think the parting comment would be for anybody who's interested, please please go to the Florida Hickory Golfers website. And if you're at all interested and come out and join us, we get together pretty much once a month or contact either one of us directly and mm -hmm. uh, love to talk to you. I, that's the other thing. I just, you know, if anybody wants to call, just, you know, uh, drop me an email or go to the Florida Hickory site and just get in touch with us and uh, we can talk Hickory golf and uh, try to get together. I, I would like to just add that this the Florida Hickory thing proves to me again and again that regional groups like this should be more like keeping a cat and not like launching a rocket ship. <laughs> as soon as there are board meetings and bylaws and all that other stuff, I get frightened. And it's just like, just tell me when we're playing next month. Yeah. You know, and, I've, and I was part of, the, I mean, I was kind of a bigger part of the SOHG and some of the uh, opens and stuff. And I mean, God bless Bill for having the patience to, to do his two years with them. But, uh, you know, this is really, it's a, it just doesn't have to be crazy. It's just, let's go pick a course and play. And I think that's the most attractive thing to people. And we make, you know, certainly Bill and I, you know, we run that tournament to make it easy for people. Our friend Brian Schumann, who one day we're going to get back into Hickory Golf, you know, he used to make it so people could just show up and it was taken care of at that point. That was his whole theory. And he was a great marketing showman guy. Um, and, I, you know, he still is. And, and, and he'll be back in it at some point, too. He's in Florida half the year. So that's what I look forward to is just this just works and it's enjoyable to continue doing things in an organization that works and isn't a pain in the you know what well said well congratulations guys i i have a feeling your group is going to be the fastest growing group in the u.s so congrats you. you're doing Thanks, great Tom. stuff <laughs>